Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Ebola strikes again, this time in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And there was a false alarm in Denver just last week. And for the second time in days, Major League Baseball players have been diagnosed with hand, foot, and mouth disease. What's going on? Jason Tetro is a microbiologist and the germ guy. Listen. This whole Ebola story, reading from statnews.com, a week after the most recent Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo was declared over, Mm -hmm. the country has confirmed it has found more cases of the disease, and in one of the outbreaks there were 26 patients, 20 of them died. What do we make of this? Uh, Well, um, basically Ebola is pretty much everywhere in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, it doesn't matter where you go, if you happen to go into the forest and you start playing around with uh, bush meat and, and other things like that, and sometimes bats, uh, there's a very good likelihood you're going to get infected. Uh, the, the interesting thing is that um, there have been three relatively um, related outbreaks in terms of time uh, in three completely different areas of the country. Um, the one that just started is like on the other side. It's on the eastern side of the, of the country as opposed to the western side, which is where the one they just finished off. Um, you know, it, it's getting to a point where uh, essentially Ebola is becoming sort of our generation smallpox. And so we've got to figure out a way to either get people from going in and playing with the animals and talking with the animals if you're Dr. Doolittle, or we get them vaccinated so that they just don't have to worry about it. So that that is possible. Now, I remember the last time, it was about, was it two years ago? Two um, or three years ago, we had the, the last outbreak. So that was the 2014, 2014. 2014, okay. Yeah, that was the big epidemic. And yeah. that led to finally, uh, speaking of which, a Canadian uh, group actually made the vaccine. It sat on a shelf for a number of years, but that prompted finally the movement towards getting that vaccine to go. Now, a couple of years ago, it was shown to be about 100% effective in very small trials, and now they're using it uh, in what we call ring vaccination, which essentially is you're isolating where the, the, the virus was found to be able to knock out the virus simply through protecting people, which is what vaccination is for. Sorry, mm-hmm. anti-vaxxers, but that's exactly what it's for. So the fact is, is that once we start rolling out more and more of the vaccine, then we're going to have less and less of these instances, much like we saw with smallpox. But until we start getting into the, you know, these areas where it's very common, we're going to see these small outbreaks happen. And let me just say one other thing. This has been happening since 1976. We've been seeing these little outbreaks. It's just that now we're paying much more attention to it as a result of what happened uh, in West Africa. So in 2014, 2015, it was a tremendously disturbing, maybe it was just the news coverage, maybe the news coverage was more disturbing than what actually is happening as far as the global sense is concerned. But I remember speaking on a daily basis almost with a uh, with a Swiss, a member of the Swiss Red Cross who was there. Yeah. And what he was, the stories he was telling about what he saw was terrifying. Mm-hmm. And, and so when we started to hear about the vaccine being available or getting close to being available, now, now is there enough vaccine to cover what's required? No, uh, it's still in the development phase because it does have to go through a number of thresholds. And this happens for every medication, whether it be a vaccine uh, or an antibiotic, which we'll get to in a bit. 
Um, and, and so once it gets past that phase, then the World Health Organization is going to give it that approval, and then we'll be able to start mass producing and having the mass rollout. Okay. The only thing that could get in the way is the fact that, once again, you are dealing with something that's being made by a company that expects to have profits. So we're going to have to start seeing some kind of negotiations. I know um, you know, Red Cross, Doctors Without Borders, and numerous other countries are getting involved in trying to make sure that it's going to be available and it's going to be cost-effective. Now, I spoke with Doctors Without Borders when the news of the last uh, breakout or outbreak was uh, first started to, to roll out. And they were very upset because they had alerted the World Health Organization some months earlier that this was something that was going to be big if it wasn't stopped. And they were not at all happy with the lack of response or timely response by the WHO. Uh, is, are we more likely to see the WHO respond more quickly? Is it necessary for them to do so? Or what's going on as far as that's concerned? Well, you have to think about something. Have you ever read the book, uh, the, uh, the Boy Who Cried Wolf? Yes. Yes. So basically what happened is the World Health Organization created um, a pandemic uh, call back in 2009-2010 with the, uh, the, the, flu va- uh, the flu virus, the swine flu, or as we call it, the H1N1 PDM. Right. It didn't do as bad as everyone expected it to, including the World Health Organization. And what ends up happening is uh, you have what we call the Irene phenomenon. Um, remember Hurricane Irene that went around and like the entire state of New York basically evacuated and boarded itself up? Yes. And then it missed? Yes. And then all of a sudden the government was basically called a bunch of fear-mongering fools? Yep. Well, that's what happened at WHO. Okay. So when Ebola came out, they were having to deal with the fact that, well, if we stamp this out quickly, we're going to look like idiots again. Unfortunately, if you don't do that and you don't take that risk, and then it does break out as opposed to an outbreak, then all of a sudden you're going to create the panic. Mm-hmm. So it's a really it's a catch-22 for the World Health Organization. But now everybody is so completely aware of what Ebola is that they can get away with being able to talk about it in, in a realistic fashion as opposed to being, you know, timid and and insecure about whether or not it's going to hurt them in the end. Okay, so one of the things that we talked about last time when Ebola appeared, and it was inevitable, we all started to talk about the First World War, 1917, 1918, Mm -hmm. when the so-called Spanish flu, I think, was was that H5N1? No, that was just an H1N1. H1N1. Yeah. So that appeared, and some 50 million people worldwide lost their lives, and I believe more American servicemen died of the H1N1 than did of enemy fire in the last year of the yeah. war. So that was at a time when the international travel wasn't anywhere near as sophisticated as it is today. So one of the real concerns was you can leave uh, a country where there's an infection issue, where people are sick and dying, and you can be in another part of the world where the Ebola hasn't even uh, been much thought about. You get off the plane, and now you're starting to cause problems, which... We started to see in the United States, I think last time one person died. I know that's a very small number, obviously. But last week, somebody in, uh, there was a reaction in Denver where someone was quarantined for a period of time. What do you make of the concern that these, uh, that's, that was Ebola specifically, could break out, as opposed to outbreak, but break out, yeah, break out. across the world quickly? Well, it comes down to two things. Um, the first thing is money. <laughs> you see, when it's done by the military, they're paying for everything, so that's how you can get the travel and that's how you can get the spread. Right, right. right. And that was one of the problems that we had with the 1917 leading into 1918. Thing is, is that it costs a lot of money to get from a place in the middle of nowhere, Congo, into, you know, Denver. 
Now, if you happen to be sponsored by a Christian organization, um, and we saw this with the gentleman who you know, was transferred over to uh, Atlanta, I can't remember his name now, he was cured of the virus, then oh, it's being paid for. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? But when you start talking about people who are on the ground, who live there, and are trying to escape, okay, unless you have access to funds, you're not getting out of there. You're not getting, you know, you're not going anywhere. Right. Now, this is one of the things that I keep hearing about, is that people are so worried about open borders. Oh, my God, people are going to bring Ebola here. No, because it's going to take them a lot of time in order to get here, because they've got to go to a place, get the money, and then be able to move. All right? Now, the actual incubation period is very small. It's only like one to two weeks. So the fact is, is that long before their aspirations of coming to Canada ever happen, they're going to come down, and they're going to be stuck there. And as we found with the, um, uh, with the great work that uh, the Canadian government was doing with refugees in Jordan, they go through significant amounts of testing. They look for TB. They look for any kind of viruses. They look for any kind of other types of infections. So nobody comes across that has the potential to lead to something here. If you have the money to do it yourself, which is what most middle-class and upper-class people can do, then you're the risk. But when it comes to the people who are poor and starving and the refugees and that, there's absolutely no risk whatsoever. Yeah, and the, the person who gets, as you said, gets on a plane and wants to take advantage of getting into Canada, which does happen, they can buy their ticket and they can get here without any help from anybody. And that can be a problem. Now, let me ask you, is, is, is Ebola... Is it a is it is it a virus or is it um, what's the other one? Yeah, no, it's a virus. It's not a bacterium or a fungus okay. or a protozoan. It's a virus. Yeah, it's a virus. Okay. Yeah, it's a nasty virus. Yeah. So let me take a quick break. I want to ask you then about the uh, what's happening you know, or happened in Major League Baseball. I had not even heard of <laughs> hand, foot, and mouth disease. I hadn't even heard of it until I saw this story. I mean, I, it seemed to be something that happened in the Middle Ages, in my brain, anyway. Yeah, well, if you happen to be either insider baseball or fantasy baseball, you might want to tune into this. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And ba- one of the, the most disgusting place in the world is a baseball dugout. I mean, the spit is about four inches high. Well, the, I mean, the, the hockey area is probably grosser, but I agree. I mean, there's a lot of spit going on. Visit Apple Podcasts or Google Play now and sign up for the Roy Green Show podcast. 100% free. 100% Roy. I'll uh, confess that uh, after I heard that the British health, um, the head of the health medical system in the UK had uh, great concerns that we were facing some sort of health Armageddon because bacteria were becoming so resistant to antibacterials that I've been paying very close attention to what's going on as far as health news is concerned. And there was this story about 19 cities that were studied globally as far as uh, antibiotic-resistant germs or genes being breathed in by the populations. And uh, the story begins in the United States, at least 2 million people become infected by antibiotic-resistant bacteria every year, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. As a result, 23,000 people die each year from those infections. And the researchers on this new paper set out to find if the air in urban cities contains any of 30 genes that are resistant to seven common classes of antibiotics. The team found that all the cities he studied, which were in the United States, China, Indonesia, Singapore, 
Australia, Poland, France, Denmark, Brazil, and South Korea and South Africa had antibiotic-resistant genes in the air. And a city in the United States contained the most, and that city was, or is, San Francisco. Jason Tetro stayed with us. He is a microbiologist, of course. He's the uh, author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files, and he is the germ guy. So well, provide some context to this story, please, Jason. Uh, yeah. Uh, inside of you, inside your gut, and inside your lungs, and uh, everywhere else, there, there's going to be antibiotic resistance genes. So you would kind of expect that it's probably going to be in the air. And uh, all this study is doing is basically showing that there's way too much Cipro use in the United States. <laughs> That's about <laughs> it. So this is when you, when you go to the doctor, and I had an emergency room doctor say to me not long ago, in just a private conversation, said, I have patients in my ER who are absolutely convinced that they require an antibiotic. They don't, yeah. but they're absolutely convinced that they do. And I'm so busy, he said, that I will prescribe them an antibiotic that's not going to do them any harm just to get rid of them. Yeah. Because I have so many patients to take care of. Oh, absolutely. Um, let me tell you something. 1999, when I was sort of looking into this uh, hardcore, with about 66% of all the antibiotics were either um, completely unnecessary or were misprescribed. In other words, they, they prescribed the wrong antibiotic. And it's gone down. Um, it's probably more like about 25 to 30%, depending on where you are. Um, but that's still a lot of antibiotics that are being used for absolutely no reason at all. And then, of course, you get people who stop their antibiotics before they've you know, completed. Then they flush them down the toilet. And, of course, it's going to go into the water. Wastewater is going to have it. That's eventually going to end up in the fields. And, of course, agriculture is using antibiotics as well. And so that's going to end up um, you know, in the animal feeding and everything. So you put all of that together. You increase the heat. Uh, like we keep seeing, and uh, those genes are going to end up going into the air. Now, the question is, are those genes actually in bugs that are going to cause infection, or are even those bugs alive? And the answer is probably no, not really. And even if they happen to be alive, they're going to be in such low concentrations that they're not going to make a difference. So by, so by all means, don't stop breathing. No, don't stop breathing. I remember um, uh, Bloom County had one of these great uh, panels where they were all sitting down about talking about how they're killing all these animals and everything. And then finally one person says, oh, my God, we have to stop breathing because we're killing all the bacteria in the air. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and so the fact of the matter is, is yeah, you're going to have antibiotic-resistant genes absolutely everywhere. It's been like that since, you know, Neolithic times long, long ago, or for the Catholics at their day four. Um, and so don't worry too, too much about that. Instead, worry about the fact that when you're sick, you should find out whether you really need an antibiotic. Mm -hmm. And the uh, not to not to uh, do away with or, or not sufficiently pay attention to the great concern there is that that uh, germs are becoming far more resistant to antibiotics, and that is a, that is a huge huge issue. And that is an absolutely huge issue. Um, for the most part, the the listeners are not going to be able to do much about that mm -hmm. in terms of the microbiology, the biochemistry, but what they can do is make sure that they're minimizing the use of antibiotics in terms of their medical needs. And if you happen to be going to the grocery store, there are meats now that are being sold that come from animals that were raised without antibiotics. Go for that. Perish the thought. Oh, my goodness. I know. It's yeah, amazing. Perish the thought. I kind of like saying germs again instead of uh, bacteria. I germs, germs. Germ is a good word. Well, we can still use germs. I, I like germs. I mean, heck, I'm the germ guy, right? You are the germ guy. So what do you make of the story in Major League Baseball? We have a player for the Yankees, a player for the Mets. They both have contracted hand, foot, and mouth disease. Yeah. 
What is that? What is hand, foot, and mouth disease? Okay, so it's basically... Um, uh, it's a secondary symptom of an infection from one of a number of different types of viruses. And you end up with these painful sores on your mouth, on your hands, feet, and all these places. And they're so painful that they really prevent you from being able to do much. Now, the fact is, is that it's all over the place. It's, it's around children all the time. And children can eventually spread this, this to adults. And in most cases, if you have a really good immune system, you'll be able to kill the virus before it can get into um, your lymph nodes uh, and then eventually spreading to your skin and everything. Now, if you happen to have problems with your immune system, that'll make these viruses more likely to spread and to cause the symptoms. And in the case of these two MLBs, I think this is an absolutely fascinating case of social factors. Both Syndergaard and J.A. Happ in the last few months have been dealing with trade rumors. And if you've been watching the interviews with them, they've been stressed out of their skulls, which is going to lower their immune system. And then they come into contact with children who have this naturally, mm -hmm. and they get it. And instead of being able to fight it off because their immune systems are so burdened, it ends up actually leading to these um, conditions that then take them and put them on the oh, what reserve. A, what a story. It's incredible. What a, what it? A, what a, yeah, it really is an incredible story. Jason, it's always great speaking with you. Thank you for taking the time on a Sunday afternoon on the long weekend. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I hope everyone is having a great day, even after we've had this talk. <laughs> the scary talk. <laughs> Jason Tetro, the germ guy microbiologist, the author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files.